1: Family caregivers don't have to be alone in their experiences. You will hear from experts and other caregivers facing the same issues that you may be facing. Now, here is your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley.
2: Welcome to Episode 139 of Family Caregivers Unite. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, your host. Our topic today is justice for persons whose mental health conditions render them especially vulnerable to abuse. At least 11 mental illnesses damage the way persons act, react, speak or think. These persons have no control, or almost no control, over the effects of the damage. So these persons may act or react or speak or think in ways that put themselves or others at risk of harm. These risky effects of mental illnesses render persons vulnerable to abuse, which can be physical, psychological, or financial. To talk about justice for such persons, our guests today are Peter Rosenthal and Susan Fraser. Now, Peter, first of all, has been Professor of Mathematics at the University of Toronto since 1967. His interest in law stems from his interest in social justice. He'd had a long career as a paralegal, representing protesters charged with summary conviction offences, among many others. He subsequently attended law school, graduated from the University of Toronto in 1990, and was called to the bar in 1992. He's since represented protesters, including members of the Black Action Defence Committee and the Ontario Coalition Against Poverty, and G20 activists. He's conducted criminal, civil and constitutional litigation at all levels of courts and acted at many coroner's inquests. He still teaches and researches in mathematics at the the University of Toronto where he's also adjunct professor of law teaching litigation and social change. Susan is a lawyer specialising in constitutional and administrative law with over 15 years' experience in public interest, social justice, children's rights, and mental health issues. She regularly appears as counsel at the Human Rights Tribunal of Ontario, the Ontario Review Board, among others, and at all levels of court in Canada. She leads and is a member of the Court of Appeal of Ontario's Friend of the Court panel for mentally disordered offenders. She's dedicated her career to advancing the rights and interests of vulnerable people by representing them, their families and public interest groups in various forums. Through this work she's developed um, a unique understanding of the discrimination and vulnerability faced by persons with mental health problems and of the experiences of their family caregivers. So welcome to the show Peter and Susan. Thank you very much. Okay now Peter let's start with you first please. Please tell us a, a little bit more about your career background and how your legal practice connects with mental health.
3: Okay well Uh, You gave a pretty good summary to begin with of my legal background, but uh, with mental health issues, I've mainly uh, dealt with people at the bad end of things. In particular, I've been involved in a number of inquests where people with mental health issues were victims. The first one that I really got into was in the mid-1990s when three men froze to death on the streets of Toronto and each of them had some mental health issues, and there was an inquest into their three deaths at once. That led to many, uh, many involvements subsequently for me. Maybe I'll talk more about that later. And I've also sometimes represented people in criminal matters who had mental health issues. There's a mental health court that was established some years ago. That has some good aspects and some bad aspects, and perhaps we might get into that later on as well. Okay. Those have been, I would say, my main
2: involvement with uh, people with mental health issues. Right. Um, Susan, now, it's basically the same question. Please tell us more about your career background and also your experience with family caregiving and your views of family caregiving's role in the kind of circumstances we're, we, we are talking about now. Susan?
4: Well, um, I've been fortunate to represent both people with mental health problems and their families and community organizations, so I've got different insights into how the system works for people with mental health problems and the role of the caregivers. The main challenges, of course, are in accessing care. Um, Sometimes my clients might resist the kind of care that's offered and the families need to advocate for better care or different care, and of course... Um, One of the things about being a lawyer and doing mental health work is that you often come into contact with families or people who are dealing with the consequences of when the care fails. So that might be through a coroner's inquest process, like Peter was describing, or that might be through a human rights process. But in the struggle to access care and that's both in terms of the person wanting to access a care that works for them and families trying to get care for their loved ones, Um, we often kind of lose um, the support to the individual needs of the caregiver who have separate and distinct needs from the person who uh, needs care and who is vulnerable. So much of the work I do is about capacity of people with mental health problems, but that also evolves into understanding that the needs of the person who is ill or in crisis are separate and apart from the caregiver. Right.
2: Peter, to go back to you, let's just focus on this matter of the risky effects of mental illnesses. You've already mentioned um, some of them, but I'd like you to say more uh, about the way in which your type of law practice um, could deal or does deal with the issues that are relevant to these risky effects? Well,
3: one uh, unfortunate area to have to talk about is the the situation where people who have mental health issues get involved with the police in a way that ends up with them being killed by police. There are a number of cases like that, unfortunately, over many years in Toronto, have been a number of inquests into those kind of deaths. And it's uh, tragic that the same thing keeps on happening still. There's um, an upcoming inquest into the deaths of three people who were shot within the last year or two by Toronto police, all of whom had mental health issues. In all cases, the officers say that the victim was coming at them with a sharp object, And they had no choice but to shoot now in my view there were choices there were choices that had to be made before then and there have been a number of inquests that have emphasized that that officers in dealing with people who have mental health issues especially but maybe with all people should try de-escalation techniques way before it ends up with that final confrontation And it just doesn't happen, unfortunately, on the street. The training has really improved a lot in recent years. If you look at the training videos, you'd say, wow, that's really good. But then somehow it doesn't translate into what happens on the street. And there are a couple particular stories I would tell you to illustrate that. I don't know if we should wait a bit for those stories or if I should
2: go into one right now. I'd, I'd ask you to wait because t- the tyranny of time always looms over us, and I have another question, hey. Susan. Please. Yeah. So, Susan, say it's really the same question. Please tell us about the the way your law practice um, deals with and interacts with things that have relevance to these risky effects. Um, that Peter's been talking about and also that you've mentioned. So, risky effects in your law practice. Susan?
4: Yes. Well, we tend to think of people's uh, vulnerability in terms of their interaction with others, but people with mental health problems or people who are in crisis or emotionally disturbed persons, however you describe people who are experiencing something that we would consider out of the normal range of experience, are at risk in a number of ways. Often they're without housing. Often they're power they 're without power they ha they might be poor they might be um, very disoriented. The behavior um, when somebody is in a crisis um, could mean that they 're experiencing uh, what we describe as auditory or hallucina- or auditory or visual hallucinations, so that when they interact with people um Communication is impaired because they might not actually hear what the person is saying but in interactions with other people one of the main things that they might be experiencing is they might be very fearful usually the very same emotion that somebody who's on the other side of an interaction with somebody who might be in crisis is experiencing so the vulnerability from my experiences comes from both the person's fear and our fear of somebody who's acting strangely or different and that puts that person at great risk often with their caregivers often with hospital providers often with police and often with just your regular person on the street
2: Peter mentioned the situation where the police adopt um, what for them is a defensive um, approach and where the person with the um, risky Behavior, if I can call it that, um, becomes the victim, uh, even to the point of being shot. Now, I'd like to ask you both quickly whether you see that as a fundamental issue of, that healthcare and Canada generally needs to pay more attention to. Uh, we only have a few seconds, but Peter, how do you see it? And then Susan, how do you see it? I
3: don't think that particular the narrow aspect is so much a health problem as a policing problem. But uh, there are more fundamental problems that are health problems, as Susan alluded to, that problems of providing housing, providing supportive housing, providing appropriate support for such people, so that uh, way before they end up in that situation, someone gives them some proper care.
2: Got it. Susan, what do you think?
4: And I think along those lines, if we look at it as a social determinant of health, Problem, But if we look at health not just as about being about medicine, but about being something greater, then of course it's a health problem because we need to solve the problems of housing, of poverty, and the health of the person in order to make that person well. It's a distinct kind of health problem, which is separate and apart from the physical health problems that we understand much better.
2: So it really comes back to what you both mentioned, and that is a question of care. But the care isn't just confined to things that doctors, physicians do. It extends into the social field of housing and all those related matters. Have I interpreted you both correctly when I say that?
3: Absolutely. I think so. (laughs) The inquest that I mentioned in the 1990s that dealt with the deaths of three men who froze to death in the streets of Toronto was very interesting in that respect. We had to fight very hard to get that point of view heard, even at the coroner's inquest. But it was loudly heard, and the jury then adopted recommendations about housing for such people and so on, including um, one that has been in the news recently, too. There's a question, uh, one mental health problem that some people have who are homeless or in very underhoused is alcoholism. And one of the unfortunate facts at that time was that no shelter would allow a person who's an alcoholic to keep any alcohol with him. So, what uh, many alcoholics would do is drink a whole bottle or drink a huge amount just before they go into the shelter because they know they need to have drink overnight and so on. So, One of the recommendations of that jury was to establish what are called wet shelters to allow people who are alcoholics to have a bottle there that they drink moderately from. And uh, unfortunately, recently, one of the few wet shelters in Toronto was closed. It was called the schoolhouse, and that's been a matter of recent uh, concern by people who care about homeless people. Right.
2: Now, we're going to go to the break because this is where we have to pay our rent. Um, so I will do that now (laughs) this is Dr. Gordon Atherley and my guests are Peter Rosenthal and Susan Fraser you're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety Channel please stay with us we're coming back
5: We are in the midst of a global sovereign debt crisis that could lead to the ultimate risk for the world economy, the removal of the U.S. dollar as the world's reserve currency. What will this event really mean to the markets? And more importantly, what does it mean for you and your family? Listen to Global Currency Watch with your host, Stephen Ayer, to get a full and objective look at the world's sovereign debt crisis and help you prepare for when the crisis envelops the United States. Global Currency Watch airs live every Thursday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Business. I'm not the one
2: Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific for the Dr. Pat Show with Dr. Pat Bacilli, Radio to Thrive By.
5: Streaming live, the leader in Internet Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com.
1: You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email. To Doc G at Now, back to Family Caregivers
2: Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Peter Rosenthal and Susan Fraser. Our topic is justice for persons whose mental health conditions render them especially vulnerable to abuse. Now, You're both lawyers, please. So let's talk about actual legal cases, you've mentioned some already, in which types of risky effects of mental illnesses have found their way into the justice system and what the outcome was. So starting with you, Peter, first, please. Please would you highlight what you see as a key case and say what? Well, there are several cases
3: I could highlight. I did mention the one about the uh, inquest into three homeless men, but maybe I'll uh, mention a different inquest. To illustrate the, the problem of police officers dealing with people in crisis when they feel threatened, there was a man named O'Brien Christopher Reed who was walking in Edwards Gardens in 2005 or something, and he was wasn't wearing a shirt, which it was in June, and some people thought that was bizarre. I think that's reasonable, but what was unusual was he was carrying a large kitchen knife. He wasn't threatening anybody, but carrying a large kitchen knife it turned out he was somebody who was. Pre-schizophrenic. He was schizoid. He hadn't been fully de- de- uh, diagnosed yet. His mother later said that probably what he was doing—he was thinking he was maybe going out to cut sugar cane like he did with, as a boy or something. But his he he, he walk along, several people phone the police appropriately. This guy looks like he might be dangerous. The police come upon him. He's not. He doesn't have the knife on him. He's crouching down, he gets up as the police come to him, and they come up and they yell at him, get down on the ground. He says, what for? They say, get down on the ground. He starts to run. They pepper spray him, they chase him. Ultimately, he seems maybe he found the knife where he had put it or something, and he turned and faced them, and they ended up killing him. This man was not a criminal. This man was a 25-year-old person who had just recently begun having hallucinations, had been uh, an upstanding person. If the police had just answered this question, if the police had just gone up to him and he said, what for? Instead of saying, go down to the ground, they'd gone up to him and said, excuse me, sir, we'd like to talk to you for a second. The whole situation would have been entirely different. And the police have been told that in training after training, and they still don't do it. Michael Elligon There's a recent case that's been in the news, a man obviously in distress because he was wandering around in a hospital gown in February, hospital gown and socks, and a number of police officers had interchanges with him. There's no suggestion so far. We'll hear more about that at the inquest, but it doesn't appear any police officer tried to really talk to him. He had scissors in his hands, apparently. And they were yelling at him to drop it, drop it, and he kept walking, and he got killed. Yeah. Those things shouldn't happen in Toronto ever again.
2: Right. Susan, it's exactly the same question once more. That is what you see as a key case, and why you see the outcome as especially important to the types of risky effects that we're we're considering now. Susan? Susan?
4: Well, my, my experience um, is in some other, uh, some other cases where the rights of people with mental health problems are established. So the case of Starson and that person being able to have a say into how he's treated and our understanding of what capacity means. But my experience is, is that where there have been advances for people who have mental health problems, what's established in law has not really found its way into reality. There's a gr- big gulf between what the law says the protection is and what the experience is of the person with mental health problems. And so, in my experience, that gulf leads to uh, disappointment, misunderstanding, and resistance to what's perceived as the system because they, they're told they have rights and the rights have no meaning when a person with a mental health problem interacts with the system. And so the experience becomes a very problematic one where people with mental health problems, even though they have these wonderful rights enshrined, really feel marginalized and left out of the system. And I think that puts them at greater risk. So it's a different kind of, under, a different kind of legal case than what Peter's talking about. But um, what we haven't seen develop in the law is... Any kind of understanding, legislative or in the case law, to entitlement to services like the right to housing, or instead of having treatment forced upon you, to saying, here's what you can have, here's what you're entitled to: crisis services, psychotherapy, um, the kind of services that people want when they're in crisis, and the kind of people, the kind of services that families want uh, to get their loved ones into. So the law now, hasn't really helped in in my view.
2: I'm going to stay with the um, lawsuits and the law f- for the moment, but we will come back to the social issues, uh, if you yep. can put them that way, that you've both spoken about. Now, Peter, to you, let's consider a community of family caregivers whose family members are all involved with the justice system because of these uh, risky be risky effects of mental illnesses how can these family caregivers get information about the way in which the justice system operates so they may know the options that are open to them and their family members and perhaps consider collective action of some kind Peter?
3: Well, uh, at the risk of seeming self-promoting the lawyers do know something about the justice system Some, especially and uh, a lawyer like Susan Fraser Is really somebody that you can call on for such information and advice. In fact, I've referred clients to her for exactly that purpose. As far as uh, dealing with the, dealing with various issues such as she mentioned. Dealing with um, criminal matters as uh, some people sometimes uh, unfortunately get themselves into. It would be important, I think, for Family caregivers to stay on top of any criminal case if somebody's charged, and stay on top of any any situation where they're going to interact with police. In particular, sometimes people are taken to hospital involuntarily under forms under the Mental Health Act and so on. I would think family caregivers should make sure that if such an action is necessary, that they monitor it. They don't just assume that the police will handle it appropriately, but they watch what's going on and uh, try and accompany the person to the hospital
2: to make sure that things go well rather than tragically. Right. Susan, um, let's consider the individual family caregivers whose family members are involved with the justice system because of these risky effects we're talking about. What should they know about the role of specialists, especially psychiatrists, psychologists and lawyers in legal actions? And I'm probably not using that word very accurately, but in the sense of here are people caught up in the law, the justice system. Um, what should the family caregivers know about the roles of these specialist people in these kinds of situations? Susan? Susan?
4: I would say that the and and because every every region has different individual programs across provinces and likely across the country and across America, that I'm gonna to try to give some generic advice. And that advice would be that for um, every caregiver, that person has to be uh their best advocate and almost present in very digestible information um uh, the best summary of their understanding of their loved one's problem. And I'll say loved ones. And sometimes when a caregiver is, has somebody who's in crisis, uh, it's very hard to feel loving because the circumstances are very difficult. But um, but that family member wants to see the best thing happen. I, I truly believe that. And they've got to know that a lawyer or a psychiatrist, uh, whoever is taking charge of that case or has a role of their uh, their family member's criminal case can play a very significant and sometimes um, uh, dangerous role. So the a psychiatrist report might end up meaning uh, that the person is not criminally responsible and that person ends up in the forensic mental health system for a very long time. So they have to um, try to get as much information as they can without um, repelling the professional, uh, because professionals don't like people intruding, unfortunately, too much on the situation. Um, And they have to also present the best case possible in the way that's easy for people to understand. Um, And I think that often caregivers will get dismissed because the story is often so long and understandably so convoluted that nobody really digests all of the details. So they have to spend some time working on making sure that the key elements are easily understood by whoever they're dealing with. And that's, I think, a really important piece. Um, And I think they also have to be aware of anybody who thinks they know the precise answer. Um, sometimes what appears to be the best route for somebody might have really unintended consequences. So they have to understand before they're they're advocating a particular route for their family member that they understand where that long road is going to take their family member. So those are my sort of two generic pieces of advice.
2: Good. Now let me go back to Peter and just... Again, time is time is uh, overriding us, but we do have uh, just a minute or so. Peter, are people who families who find themselves in the situations we're talking about su- sufficiently well informed, or are their systems? Uh, that are sufficiently available so they can get a, a sense of where to go first. The reason I'm asking it is that often on this show I've heard family caregivers say that when something happens, particularly when it happens suddenly, they feel alone, and they feel that they need information that they can understand, they can trust, and that is actually usable in the situation. Long-winded question, but Peter, do you think that sort of information flow is good enough in society as it is at the moment?
3: It doesn't seem very good at all from my experience. Uh, I have the good access to such information, but I find it very hard to locate proper information for clients related to these issues. There should be more demand for government to provide more such information. Somebody like Susan deals with this much more than I do, and she would probably be able to tell us what's out there, but... Whatever's out there, it's not enough to be easily findable by somebody, especially when when there's a crisis and you need to find something quickly. There should be more uh, available crisis hotlines and websites that are well-known to people and that they, and they really have good information. It's important. I, I, I would like to underline something that Susan said that I think is very important. People, when they are themselves giving information, when caregivers are giving information to police officers psychiatrists lawyers anyone they should be careful to make it really succinct and stick with the main points if they tend to go on and on which some people do when a story is long and convoluted then uh, they don't get hurt at all
2: now on that point point. i have to break in because we uh, do have to go to our break once more so let's do that now this is dr gordon Ashley, and my guests are Peter Rosenthal and Susan Fraser, you're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety Channel. We're coming back.
1: Find out which guests are being featured this week. Read our network press releases and read the blog posts from your favorite hosts. Go to iradioblog.com today, powered by the Voice America Talk Radio Network.
5: How has your belief system been formed? Has it been based on others telling you what to believe? Do you desire to make changes in your life that you know will bring you deeper fulfillment? Tune in to The Ripple Effect with Catherine Cloward for your weekly dose of inspiration and encouragement. Whether it be in your business, personal relationships or family life, this show will help you recognize and trust your intuitive knowing. Catherine and her guests will help inspire you to make fulfilling choices for your life. The Ripple Effect is her live every Thursday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety.
1: Do you find yourself tearing pictures of rooms out of magazines? Do you watch certain movies and TV programs because of the homes they show? Are Sundays reserved for open houses? then you are a home dreamer and someday you will build or renovate your dream home. Steve Clip has spent three decades learning how to win at the dream home game. His show winning the Dream Home race can be heard every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern time 5 p.m Pacific time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Let Steve Clip help save you money and make you a winner. The
5: Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com
1: You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. Now, back to... To Family Caregivers Unite
2: Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Peter Rosenthal and Susan Fraser Our topic is justice for persons whose mental health conditions render them especially vulnerable to abuse Let's now talk about the types of legal actions and their strengths and weaknesses relative to responses to these risky effects of mental illnesses Now, Peter, first question for you What's the role of class actions? How effective are they in recognising inappropriate or harmful responses to to risky effects of mental illness and in prompting, how effective are they in prompting redress of some kind? Peter? Well, that's an interesting question. Um,
3: Class actions haven't been around that long in Ontario, I forget exactly how long, 10-15 years. I'm not aware of a class-action lawsuit that really dealt with these kind of issues. Uh, there, may be, there may be one that I haven't heard of, but a class-action can be a powerful tool. It's, uh, it's a bit cumbersome, though. It takes uh, quite a while and so on. But uh, it would be interesting to formulate some problem here that uh, that is fairly ubiquitous and start a class-action about it. There have been uh, individual lawsuits for patients' rights of various kinds and for um, families of victims suing police and so on. But a, a class action that's focused on some aspect that was common to hundreds of people would
2: be very interesting. Right. Susan, question to you on individual legal actions. Yes. Yes. You know, how effective are these in recognizing inappropriate or harmful responses and in prompting, you know, redress, where redress is considered the right way to go? Susan?
4: Well, the laws haven't advanced in the same way where that we see in other areas, where um, the law is kind of corrective, that a high damage award might you know, create the need for a product, somebody who produces a product, to make their product in a different way to make it safer. There was, so what we see are these little individual actions that are trying to take little bites of the apple, um, but never really getting to the core of change. They're hard and they're difficult um, because the person has fluctuating capacity and likely the person with the illness or who's in crisis is going to be, their evidence is going to be needed to make the case successful. And that um, uh, sometimes changes over time. Where I have greater optimism in Ontario is before our Human Rights Tribunal, because um, in addition to just giving money, the Human Rights Tribunal can actually um, require certain kinds of change to policy, to practice, to procedure. And so... Um, I recently had a case that went before the Human Rights Tribunal where what was mandated was education, where there was an award of damages, um, and where you really saw people change their policy as a result of that, so I'm more optimistic about that, but the individual burden um, is a lot for somebody whose whose health problem is about um, their ability to think clearly and to advance these issues. um, there really needs to be um, systemic support behind those kinds of actions through public interest groups to support um, that kind of change if, if it's to come through a legal action
2: Right Peter, to flow from on from what Susan was saying um, there are signs that family caregivers are getting more organized and getting their voices heard more often maybe not enough but there are some movements so let's suppose that we've got a group of family caregivers um, who want to explore the idea of a class action uh... without necessarily waiting for an, uh, you know someone like like you both lawyers to initiate this but they think that something here that needs to be done um, what, um, what what would be the advice that you would give well, it. if
3: they're going to formulate a class action, they probably will need a lawyer. Well, they definitely will need a lawyer in, in actually doing it. You know, you can represent yourself in most uh, actions in civil court in most parts of the world, but uh, for a class action, you must be represented by a lawyer. But um, but you know, I think more more than class actions, I, I think Susan's right that the human rights. Uh, route offers more possibilities and it's it's much quicker and it offers a range of remedies and offers more possibilities but the important thing i think is for people to be involved in whatever happens it shouldn't just be a lawyer making legal arguments if there can be a movement that really is supported by and supports a legal action but that then has political effects as well then that's The most powerful way of trying
2: to change things, in my view. That's, if I could just stay with you for one second on that point, um, people getting more organized. That's what I was trying to convey in the sense of a group of people saying, we want change. We've been through something that we don't think is right. Other people shouldn't have to go through it. And we want things that have been done badly for us to be put right in some way. So are you saying then, in fact, people, family caregivers and others should be concentrating, dare I say this, on the political side as well as everything else? Would that be right?
3: Yes, I, I think very much so. And then sometimes the legal and political can work together, either one helping the other in the sense of political pressure and demonstrations and so on can help to said the good atmosphere for a legal case on the other hand a legal case can get some attention and help to generate public support for political action as well so in my view the usually the most powerful way of effecting change is to try to have both aspects working in tandem
2: right susan over to you now let's talk about a situation where um a family caregiver a family um believes that a family member was not appropriately cared for in a mental health facility. Uh, The the individual might have been abused. Um, They they might have been uh, delivered the wrong care or in some way abused. Um, You know, we hear stories of this and we hear accounts of this which are very convincing. So please tell us. About the help that's available to family caregivers to help them decide if, um, frankly, coming to a lawyer is the right way to go or whether the alternative might be to put in complaints to the system. Susan, what do you think?
4: Well, it often depends on whether the person is still in care of that facility or needs to go back to that facility at some point in time in the future. Often the family is going to need to resolve it. At the kind of lowest level possible, with speaking to the staff at the hospital, speaking to the doctors, and really um, calmly resolving the problem. If it's a more if the person is at risk or was really put at risk by the behavior, then there's a range of options. One, and unfortunately, you can't get relief. All in one spot. Sometimes you have to go to a number of different places. Sometimes you have to go to the professional regulators, to the College of Nurses in Ontario. They're the regulators for the nurses. The College of Physicians and Surgeons, they take complaints about doctors. And sometimes um, a complaint has to go to the facility. But when those do not seem to be enough, uh, the family member can assist the person in commencing an action against the hospital and the caregivers, uh, those um, are very hard to sustain uh, because the doctors in the hospitals are very well defended. And I'm not saying that that means they shouldn't do it. Sometimes bringing the action is enough to make change. But it's, um, if the person is capable, the person who suffered the abuse is capable, then that person is going to have to be the plaintiff. The family can only support that person person's not capable, then the family might um, ask to be litigation guardian for that person, basically to carry the litigation for that person until that person becomes capable of doing it themselves. But that comes with his own risks uh, because you're responsible for the litigation. But there's a range of things to do in addition to the human rights that we talked about before where you actually uh, litigate the issue to try to make change.
2: In other words, this is quite a complex decision-making process for the person and the family. And what I'm hearing from you both is that the pressure on the individuals in the situations may be such that it all seems too daunting to proceed. So just a quick question to you, Peter, first of all. What would you say to people (coughs) who still believe that action is required, but are just exhausted by the process. What what would you say to them?
3: Well, I, I have to be frank uh, in speaking to people in general and speaking to individuals who approach me on these matters, that there are serious problems there, as Susan was alluding to. There are problems of costs. If you start a civil suit and you lose, then you're responsible not only for your own legal fees, Even if your legal fees are pro bono, you may be responsible for the cost of the legal fees of the other side if you lose. And that's uh, something that's very risky then for if there are family members who, as uh, Susan indicates, become litigation guardians and so on. It can be very risky. Uh, That's another advantage of the Human Rights Tribunal is that costs are awarded against the losing party. But there are, there are serious problems there. I, I think the best uh, solution to them is when people unite and form some sort of public group that tries to support them. If people can get uh, broad support, then that can help to meet some of those
2: problems. Right. Susan, same question. Um, people are faced with all those risks of losing money because they lose and this kind of thing. What's What's the kind of thing you say to them when they're struggling with their own decision making?
4: Well, for me, every time I meet with a family, they think that their experiences of being badly treated are unique. And they're surprised and shocked to hear that other people have the same experience. But they're often so overwhelmed with coping with their family members' problems and trying to get access to care that, you know, their wish to write a book about what happened never really comes Um, to be. And so my advice is is somewhat the same as Peter's, is that the voice is the strongest tool that people have. It's a very powerful tool. And we now have more ways of having voices heard through social media um, and for more ways for people to connect about their experiences. Um, And I think once people get beyond the initial struggles about medication, which are always sort of the first struggles that families have when dealing with mental health problems and realize that the problems are more systemic. They're about access to care and services. If people could really bring those challenges together um, or bring that, those stories together and have them word and heard in a consistent way, that that's a very, very powerful tool. Um, but um, uh, if all else fails... Um, uh, Bringing an action and bringing it to the attention of uh, the public about what happened to a loved one is is probably the best way to make change, because hospitals are big fundraisers these days, um, and they don't want their brand to be um, uh, impaired by something that goes wrong in their hospital. So.
2: Now, I'm going to stop there because we do have the break time. So, this is Dr. Gordon Lally and my guests are Peter Rosenthal and Susan Fraser. You're listening to Family Caregivers United on the Voice and Make a Variety Channel. We're coming back.
5: Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market.
0: Adoption changes a family forever. For the adopters as well as the adoptees, there are many adjustments that need to be made. From lifestyle to financial, and the personal rewards are unlimited. Listen every week for Your Adoption Coach with Kelly Ellison. We will examine in detail such topics as international and domestic adoption. We will talk with adoption professionals and hear stories about real families adopting. If you've been thinking about adoption or recently began the process, you'll want to tune in to be inspired every Saturday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific, on Voice America Variety.
5: A divorce can break your heart, but it doesn't have to break the bank or ruin your life. Join Lori Grover for A Divorce You Can Live With and discover the benefits divorce mediation offers over aggressive, dueling attorneys. Lori and her guests will show you how you can make your divorce faster, healthier, and much less expensive. She'll also be sharing the ways she helps couples settle money and parenting issues fairly and the pitfalls of using the legal system to wage financial and emotional war. A Divorce You Can Live With airs live every Monday at 9 a.m. Eastern, 6 a.m. Pacific on VoiceAmerica.com.
1: You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. Now back to Family Caregivers Unite.
2: Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Peter Rosenthal and Susan Fraser. Our topic is justice for persons whose mental health conditions render them especially vulnerable to abuse. So let's talk about changes. Are needed in the justice system and the messages for family caregivers caring for family members with mental illnesses associated with these risky effects that we've been talking about. Starting with you, Susan, please. What changes do you think are needed? Okay, well, up?
3: you'd have to give me a week if I wanted to list them all, but let me. To take a few uh, areas that I think are very, very modest changes could help a lot. One is, I, as I indicated, I've been very concerned observing uh, police killings of mentally ill people in in uh, Toronto over recent years, that uh, while the training has improved, the effect on the street seems to be the same. And one thing that could change that, I would think, would be if officers were disciplined, failing to follow training procedures when they're out on the street. It's hard to get officers convicted of criminal offenses for these killings for various reasons, but they surely at least should be seriously disciplined up to and including losing their positions as officers. If a couple officers were disciplined for not following training in this area, that might have very salutary effects. Another thing that we've talked about um, is the difficulty the expense for family members and others uh, trying to help uh, people in mental health crises legally. Now, inquests into deaths, the families generally don't get funded for participating in inquests. That's something that can be changed uh, very easily. Uh, Everybody else there is on the public payroll, police publicly paid lawyers and so on, and the family members have to come up with something else. A third thing is there are there was a mental health court that was introduced some years ago in Toronto, and it's very good in the sense that the judges there are the kind of empathetic judges that you would hope for everybody, but in particular, they recognize that people who commit minor offenses and have mental health issues should be dealt with in very reasonable ways rather than thought of as criminals. Unfortunately, though, the mental health court doesn't conduct trials. They deal with bail matters and things like that. So they're good for getting people out of custody and so on. But if you want to have a trial, you have to just go into the regular court mix. And so I've been in a situation of representing somebody where it really should defend against the case. But... We decide it's better for him. He decides, and his caregivers decide, better to plead guilty in this court and get a very sympathetic judge
2: who will not uh, make him really suffer than to have a trial. Peter, I'm going to stop you there because I'd just like to put this question also to Susan. It's exactly the same question. What are the changes you think are needed? What needs to be done to implement them? Susan?
4: Well, on the social side, I think on the social side, Um, in Ontario there's a sort of a government statement that every door would be the right door and we're not there yet, but in terms of access to care and access to support and access to services, um, that has to be something that people can do right away before matters escalate and before there is a crisis that involves the police or involves a very intrusive mental health facility. There have to be more services that people want Um, rather than investing a significant portion of resources in in services that people don't want, um, which are the institutions and the mental health facilities, which people who have mental health problems feel are very, very restrictive. And then on the legal side, um, we need more options in the criminal justice system so that if you talk about your mental health problem, you don't risk a finding of not guilty uh, by reason of insanity, which we now call not criminally responsible, because that carries with it these consequences of indefinite detention. There needs to be a way to talk about your mental health problems without risking that. Um, For families, um, they need to know that um, people can and do recover from what's labeled as a mental health problem, that many people um, with support... uh, have recovered when they've had a job and they've had supportive housing, all kinds of things that have enabled there to be an atmosphere of hope. Um, and so families need to um, have their, they're going to have their own emotional journey when they're they're dealing with these situations, and they need support that's different and separate and apart. And our, we need a system that recognizes their needs in addition to their needs, and that together that there can be this recovery and healing. Um, and if not, then the legal system should be able to respond, whether through human rights or through litigation. Um, but 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 that will have to change to be more streamlined, so that it's more accessible to families and people with mental health problems.
2: Right, Peter. What's your message to family caregivers caring yeah. for family members with mental illnesses associated with these risky effects? What, what do you say to them?
3: You have a very difficult uh, situation to deal with. Uh, You should uh, keep on top of the situation, though, as much as you can, not not necessarily put your faith in institutions, police, psychiatrists, but you keep uh, close tabs on what's happening to the person that you care about.
4: Right.
2: Susan, what's your message?
4: Um, much along the same thing. Don't lose hope, and you've got to try as best you can in the difficult circumstances to create an atmosphere of hope. Um, safety is a big issue uh, for people with mental health problems, and there's unfortunately no place where I think somebody's going to be completely safe. So I'm hoping that families will try to create, uh, um, use their power to the extent that they're able to create uh conditions in institutions, in police services, and I've seen very many dedicated family members pursuing these interests on behalf of their family member long after they're gone to make those systems better for people um, and to meet the self-identified needs of somebody with a mental health problem. Well, on that point, I'm afraid we have to close. Time is up.
2: Um, and I want to say, first of all, thank you to our listeners. And we'd like to hear your comments on this episode. And I want to say a special thank you to Peter and Susan for sharing with us so openly your experience, your insights, your advice and your assessment of the situation that faces people with mental health uh, challenges their families their family caregivers so in your professional and your political and your social work we wish you every success continued success thank you very much thank you Now, from our listeners, I'd like to hear from you about ideas for topics or if you're interested in being a guest on the show. And in our next episode, we'll talk about remembrance of psychiatric patients' past. Please join us, same time, same spot, on the Internet. Talk to you then.
1: Thank you again for joining us this week for Family Caregivers Unite with your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley.